What is the nature of consciousness? Why does one thought flow to another? Why is psychic information often symbolic or metaphorical in nature? How does consciousness choose what is important out of the vast array of data available to it? How do we remember? What are, why are some states of consciousness more conducive to creativity and psi? Is psi an ability? What number am I thinking of? Well, these are some big questions. Um, if you get the answer right, you might get an award, or maybe not. Uh, we'll see. But these questions all have to do with a book that we have been reading, First Sight, ESP and Parapsychology in Everyday Life by James C. Carpenter, who's a psychologist and a parapsychologist. He's got this idea, um, this theory to explain you know, what psi actually is, you know, why it functions the way it does, and what role it plays in actual, uh, like, the, in the creation of consciousness, the construction of consciousness. The book is, or the title of the book, First Sight, is kind of a, a playful reference to the idea of, you know, psychic phenomena as a second sight. You know, how we have our, our, our first normal sight, which is just, you know, everyday consciousness, and then a second additional sight, which is kind of special. It's like a special ability something that we might be able to tune into, like, and maybe something that some people have and others don't. Some are psychics, some are not. Um, some have abilities, some don't. <clears throat> some people are just ordinary, normal, average Joes, and then some people seem to have these uh, you know, remarkable abilities. He says, no, that's not actually right. And the theory is built around the idea that these things that we refer to as psychic phenomena, ESP, extrasensory perception, and uh, PK, psychokinesis, as well as a whole bunch of other, you know, terms that have come into the, the parlance over the last 100, 200 years, that all of these things are, well, come down to a pre-conscious, unconscious process, uh, mental process, psychological process that is going on all the time and is that, that is actually contributing to consciousness in any given moment, at all moments, and that it, it is an essential feature um, that goes towards the construction of consciousness to the construction of experience, that without it, we wouldn't have experience as we know it, consciousness as we know it, and, and uh, understand it and experience it. So it's quite a, quite a, an ambitious project um, to be, you know, attempting so much with, uh, with a theory. And I found out that about this book years ago, and only recently got around to starting to read it. It's actually, it's a, it's a very, like, dense book. There's a lot of information. Um, so it's kind of hard to get into at first, but um, the ideas in it are so kind of, well, to me, like revolutionary that it uh, seems quite worth it. And maybe to just give a little bit of the background to how he developed this theory, um, it'll kind of explain why, um, why I found it uh, so interesting at the same time. Um, being a psychologist and a parapsychologist, of course, he's been, he'd been looking at all these things for years, uh, since at least the seventies, I think he's been doing research and, um, you know, encountering various ideas along the way, like the work of Frederick Myers, one of the early, um, psychical researchers in the 1800s, uh, all down through, you know, the Rhines and their parapsychology, parapsychological work <clears throat> and, you know, to today and all the research in between. And, you know, along the way, I, I think in one chapter he gives, like, the, the main influences on the theory, and he quotes, like, this one psychologist, I think, who borrowed one of Whitehead's terms, prehension, 
um, which we've covered in the in the past. Um, prehension being like coming from the Latin root, I believe, meaning to grasp. So this idea of something about consciousness grasping things, um, and in kind of almost a literal sense and in the metaphorical sense of like when you grasp something, you understand it, but at the same time, when you grasp something with your hand, it's an actual action that, uh, you know, you grab hold of something. It's basically saying that there's an, an analogy to be made in the realm of the mind and consciousness as well. So he's got all these kind of influences leading him in this direction, a lot of it experimentally based and basically looking at all this data and basically um, wondering how to put it all together, how to fit it all together so that it makes sense. Um, so the, what's interesting is the, the conclusions he comes to, because um, having read you know, Whitehead previously, um, to give a little background on Whitehead, Whitehead was approaching, um, approaching like a different question. He wasn't... He wasn't a parapsychologist, and he barely ever referenced um, parapsychology. I think he made like one or two references basically saying he was open to the idea of like telepathy or something like that, and, and, uh, and um, so he wasn't close-minded about it, but it didn't form an essential part of his actual like philosophy. He was strictly coming at it from the, the perspective of a mathematician and a philosopher trying to understand like you know why nature works the way it does why the the laws of nature work the way they do what is like the the common feature of of all things in the cosmos like what is you know what are the what are the parts out of which the whole is made what features do they have in common and how does that how do they apply at each level of like the the material physical universe you know from subatomic particles up to like uh, beings like uh, like humans individual human beings and some of the like philosophical like conclusions he came to in order to account for all of the phenomena of life and the, and the universe and that would include things like minds and and abstractions theories memories um, experience itself truth um, to account for all of these things he basically came up with a model that's he, he he basically said well in order for these things to be possible there needs to be some kind of non-sensory perception he called it prehension so basically, from the very smallest thing to the to the most large thing, there needs to be some kind of non-sensory like engagement with the world going on, with some like some modicum of actual experience in the world. <laughs> and um, so, what Carpenter is saying, he come he's coming to a very similar conclusion, based uh, not on the the kind of scientific, mathematical, and philosophical work that Whitehead was doing, but just based on uh, like the the psychological studies and just what he's learned being a, like a uh, I believe he might be a psychiatrist as well, but basically working with patients and doing like a laboratory research on these phenomena, and he basically comes up with this theory. It's based on like two premises, um, and I'll just kind of summarize the two premises. The first one is that mind is an uh, mind is unbounded in nature. So it's not limited, for instance, to the like your to the brain or to your physical body. That the mind actually interacts unconsciously with what he calls the extent an extended universe of meaning. Um, that itself is unbounded. It's essentially the entire possible cosmos, the entire universe, everything within it, um, in space and time. There's this unbounded interaction with that universe of meaning. And that um, there are both active and receptive processes in this mind on this unconscious level and that are intimately conjoined in the formation of any kind of um, experience 
And um, when you look at an experience, I mean, we like consciousness and the, the experience of being something, like being a human, is um, it's holistic in nature. Like there's always a, a receptive uh, a receptive part taking in information from like the world and from yourself, from your own mind, your own imagination, your own memories. And then there's a, an active like action on the world. We're constantly, so we're constantly doing both things. We're constantly acting on the world, acting on ourselves, on acting on our bodies and receiving things from the, from these same sources. And that an essential feature of that mind um, is what has been called psi, PSI. Um, so ESP and PK. So he would basically say that the active, uh, the, the active part of that unconscious process would be psychokinesis. It's an action on a physical or, uh, yeah, a physical thing. And then ESP would be a reception, like taking in some kind of uh, information. And then the second premise is that um, experience and behavior are both made up of pers- uh, purposeful unconscious processes acting on multiple streams of information. Um, and essentially, that those multiple streams of information, are, according to this theory, are all streams of information. That uh, on some level, the mind being unbounded is receiving and somehow sifting through and analyzing all the information available at, at any given moment. Um, so it's, con- it's constantly and continually scanning, the, scanning this extended universe of meaning in order to pick out the, the bits that are relevant. And so um, says this: these experience, so experience and behavior there are uh, mediated by unconscious intention and contextual appraisal. So on this unconscious level, there is an unconscious intention. So there's a goal or a purpose towards this process to to finding that relevant informa- information and what will qualify that information as relevant or not relevant, and um, a constant conte- contextual appraisal. So what is the relevance of that information in this particular context for my particular aim in this moment? And um, he says that this is basically, um, um, what this does is that it rapidly, holistically, and efficiently brings the most, uh, the most useful information to consciousness. And that this is not a mechanical, like strictly biological, mechanical, automatic process. It is automatic in a sense because it's unconscious, but at that level, it is still, um, it still has to do with things and goals and motives that are personally desirable and, uh, and what he calls situationally adaptive. So even on this unconscious level, it's not like these, it's just a, a, like a clockwork mechanism going on. At that level, it is still uh, this kind of personal, um, well, it's, just, it's, it's like, it's as, it, you can even think about it as if like um, the, this process is like, you can think about it like it's a, a person like within you or something that has its own goals and um, intentions and it has its own interaction with the world, you're just not aware of it. But that's the way it acts. It acts as if it does have some kind of agency and, um, and intentions and it's actually doing something, um, but it's just doing it unconsciously. So it, it arguably is still you, it's just on a level that you're not personally and consciously aware of. And that the purpose of Psy in this view of consciousness and this view of the mind is that what it does is that it is <clears throat> pre-consciously preparing the organism. Um, it's anticipating what will happen. And it then the, its function is basically to point the, the point this, like give a direction to this stream of like confusing information um, 
um, to point the, the organism yourself in the direction that you, so that you can become conscious of something and do something in accordance with those aims. So like those are the two main premises on which the theory is based. And another reason that I thought the, it's kind of like a timely read, timely, uh, timely time to read this book is that, uh, <clears throat> like last year, I think uh, Jordan Peterson had his debates with Sam Harris, which we talked about on a previous show. At least we talked about the first, uh, like, two of them. They did four. And one of the points that Peterson has brought up, um, and he's brought it up several times, not just in, in this interview, is that there is a, there's a big problem of consciousness and understanding it and, you know, how to make sense of the way things work because he brings up the example of, um, you know, when you, when you just analyze your experience for a second and you look like vision. Vision is, a, is a, actually a mystery because when, with all this like light information reaching your your eyes and then your brain and your mind there's so much information that it's not immediately clear why any one thing is more important than anything else if you like just simplistically try to like program some ai for instance like to to understand uh, some visual information it has trouble like differentiating the the boundaries of things it can't like it can't identify like a a whole as an identifiable whole you have to you have to program it and say okay you have to look for these characteristics and even then it's a it's a it's a problem because it is um, like I think, can't remember the the exact quote the the way William James described um, like experience it's basically like this this hustle bustle of of confusing and a bombardment of sensory data and it really is a mystery how we make sense of any of it so that that is a mystery and it's something that like most psychologists and uh, well and philosophers and you know thinkers in general haven't been able to come to terms with because it is so strange what well, it seems like there needs to be some kind of like pre-conscious process that will not only like classify the things within like your visual field for instance but then to like to give some weight to the various things in your visual field like oh that's important this is more important. Oh, this thing's the most important. Oh, those things aren't important. You can ignore those. So that seems to be the way attention works, right? If you, I mean, there's a, <clears throat> a point of focus in your eye. So well, like when you're looking at something or someone, there's one bit that's in focus and the rest is kind of blurry. Something can happen in the, in your peripheral vision that you won't even notice. Now, of course, the, you know, the, the light from, from that source is getting in somehow to your brain. You're just not um, attending to it and it doesn't register. So the information is there, but something is is basically saying, "Oh, you don't need to pay attention to that." On the other hand, something can happen in your peripheral vision that's like that alerts you, and like, "Oh, what's that?" And so when that when something like that happens, I've used this example on the show before, you know, in several shows. It's like walking through the forest and and you you come across like a um, like a branch on the on the ground, and out of the corner of your eye, and you and you get startled because you think you saw a snake. You might even you know really think you saw a snake. But so in that in, in that initial moment, there's this this moment of uncertainty where the the stimuli, like the the sensory information, is vague, and what your mind seems to do, it seems to make a conclusion before you're even aware of it that oh that is something dangerous, that is a snake, you know you have to do something about that and get out of the way. So um, that in itself is kind of like a mystery how that how that actually happens, um, but it does like it does happen, and so. What Carpenter's basically doing is trying to explain not only psi, but all of these kind of phenomena. How do, how do we make sense of all of these? Because um, now, imagine that situation, but um, he might say, okay, well, imagine this, that situation, but where you, you don't get to see the, the branch, right? You don't get to confirm whether it's a snake or not. 
Um, now imagine a situation where you're looking at something. Now you, you kind of see these in uh, like optical illusions often. So imagine that you're actually in the forest and you see something and you're actually looking at it and it's from a distance. And so you're not, and you can't tell yet if it's a snake or if it's not a snake. So there's this like extended moment or extended period of time of uncertainty and vagueness. In, in that situation, like you're, you'll have like physiological responses. Your mind will be searching for an answer. It's going to be paying attention. Um, it's going to be like trying to confirm which hypothesis is correct, which like unconscious hypothesis is correct, because you've already come up with, you know, a number of possible uh, answers to the question. And you're waiting for the confirmatory response. And in that kind of situation, I think Carpenter would say that the mind can do some interesting things. Because there's a there's an, an analogy to be made to a, a psychic, so-called psychic experience, where, um, but uh, I think before we get into that, you know, hold that in mind because I think we need some background before we get into how that actually works. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that was a really good uh, overview. Uh, like you said, Harrison, the, the book is really dense, uh, but it's, you know, it's a scientific theory. And so just like a lot of other scientific theory or books about scientific theories, you you come over, you get, uh, he covers the territory numerous times, you know, in every chapter he continues to build on the different theoretical components that he's laid down in the previous chapters. And, you know, especially in the realm of parapsychology, you know, there's just so much information out there that people aren't necessarily uh, exposed to, and to any great to any degree whatsoever. So, uh, you know, we do get this, uh, you know, kind of a caricature of what parapsychologists do, you know, through movies like Ghostbusters and and that kind of stuff. But we don't really know what's going on in the field. So it's you know, it's helpful that he produces a lot of the results of uh, what's going on in the field. And he you know, wanted to create this theory so that he could explain what was going on. Um, but just to talk a little bit about the structure of the personality that you, know, you were talking about, Harrison, and how we construct our experience using our unconscious mind, our pre-conscious mind, and psi phenomena. So he writes that he uses archetypes to to kind of convey this understanding to, you know, the ordinary layperson. So uh, the one archetype is the prophet. So this is the psi, and the psi component of our consciousness, which is constantly in contact with all of this information, and it's trying to sort out what's important. And as soon as it gets something that it's important, the prophet says that, that, you know, towards that. And then after that, after the prophet has made that determination, the artist aspect of ourselves, which is a subliminal kind of sensational type uh, aspect of our, you know, of our psychic machine, you could say, senses that there's something interesting in it, and then starts preparing this uh, pre-conscious attention, starts sharpening it in the direction of sensory events that will then take that information in. And then after that, you experience a collection of sensations that you attempt to construe. And it was, it's not until the final step that you see X, you know, you see the snake like you were talking about, you see something, and then you get a chance to think about it. So it's this extended self. It's all, it's unconscious. Most of it is unconscious. Whatever we are conscious of is just the tip of the iceberg. But it's all still this intentional aspect is still intentional it could it's whether it's unconscious or conscious it is your intentions and so it's really reliant it seems on meaningful information yeah. 
And I think that's also why this uh, theory is so interesting, is that it incorporates this core aspect of meaning mm -hmm. into a psychological scientific theory. You know, you go through the book, he, he discusses the fact that he doesn't, he's not going to talk about neurobiology at all, not because he thinks that that's irrelevant. He thinks that that would, you know, it'd be useful to study neurobiology in order to understand, you know, the correlates of different systems with psi phenomena. But the more important thing is that this is a theory about the mind. It's not a theory about, about, uh, about neuro, you know, biology, anything like that. It's just strictly about this phenomenological, meaning-focused, intentional system that seems to be able to, uh, un to uh, experience things before they happen and, you know, get vague hunches about mm -hmm. things that are happening across time and space, you know, whether it's that's in the future, whether it's... Uh, and it's always meaningful to the participant. You know, so there's a very powerful, important aspect to the theory about what he calls waiting, signing, and switching uh, these uh, the information that's you know just available out there, and mm -hmm. that the that the psi itself is is basically its job is to sift through all of this information, um, but it determines whether it is you know important to the individual, whether and then it weights it in terms of whether it's going to be, um, you know, accessed, you know, brought into consciousness or rejected from consciousness. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting way of thinking about the, like, the ideas of repression, mm -hmm. you know, and how you can just fail to remember something. Well, on an unconscious level, you know, it's not like you are, you know, purposely trying to repress some information, but it's more like your large, more extended self, you know, has this goal and it deep down you don't you just don't even want to think about it mm -hmm. you know it's it's you know subconsciously unconsciously you're out of all the sea of things that you don't that exist it's just like well yeah sure but that we're not going to think about that so it's not we're not going to bring that up to the conscious attention until you know you reach a point where you have to think about it because you know your life is falling apart or something like that mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about that too. Uh, maybe first on the bit about repression. He makes the point that uh, it was kind of confusing. It was in a in a footnote, but he was basically arguing that uh, that uh, well, first Freud had said something like that um, that the reason for repression is because you're basically avoiding something that would be too painful to to think about. Um, that you don't that uh, the the knowledge of of whatever you're repressing would be um, you know too uncomfortable. He said, well, he doesn't think that's quite right. <clears throat> he says that uh, that's actually the result of an initial, um, like, uh, an, an initial <clears throat> choosing to know something else. Basically, in that first moment, it's not that you experience something and then you, and then, like, there was this process going on to forget it because it would be too painful. It's, the, it's in that initial moment, the choice was made that because in that context, it didn't align with some motivation. Or there, there was an intention that was um, contradicting, contradictory towards that piece of information, towards that uh, that that event or that uh, conclusion or something. So it was never even really brought to to consciousness in the first place, and that um, that uh, so he's basically saying that the repression process actually probably starts a bit earlier. I think I think that's what he's saying. Maybe he gets into it further on in the book, uh, part I haven't gotten to, but. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about those things too, because it, it does explain all of, or it does it provides an account for all of these psychological like phenomena that uh, that have been recognized for <clears throat> like generations, but that uh, there hasn't really been a theory to really account for all of them and why they all work, mm -hmm. why they all do the things that they do. 
<clears throat> but I like the I like the I like the way that he kind of lays it out and those those four stages that you mentioned, Corey, like the the prophet, the artist, the the scientist, and then the the person, the being um, itself. Um, I want to maybe just expand on that a bit um, and the the whole waiting and signing. So like the if you like just accept the premises just for a moment of this theory and then kind of just try to imagine what it would be like. So you've got this mind that is basically coextensive with the universe. Like all information is there. Now the problem with that, like Peterson says, is that that is too confusing. That's too much information. You can't deal with all information all the time. There's too much work to be doing to to be able to um, you know to to channel that down into some um, you know work manageable number of you know bits of data in order to to deal with. There there has to be some initial sifting going on. So that's basically what um, what Carpenter is saying is that the um, that that initial thing that Psy does is to sift out all of the irre- irrelevant information. So it's like there are there are basic uh, basic motivations, basic intentions, and kind of like situational individual intentions all going on like uh, on the unconscious level first of all, and those can be either aligned with or at odds with your conscious intentions. Like you might want to do something consciously, and your unconscious has a different idea about it for various reasons. And so at that initial level. There, like, there's just an infinite, like, huge array of information available to you. So that in, that in, that first step is to say, okay, all this information, like, and this is going on in like a split second. All that information, irrelevant. Here's the the relevant bits of information. And so there, the, the that first process is oh, what he calls waiting. So it's like this this piece of information is important. These pieces of information not important. Okay, so you've got this inf- this piece this uh, important piece of information. Then moves on to the artist. So the artist has this information, and it's uh, it is important, but it's like now you have to ask some questions about it. Okay, this is important. Now, what are we going to do with this? Um, this is where signing comes in, because if a if a piece of information is important, that doesn't mean that it has to come to consciousness. It might be important in in the sense that you have to um, uh, like repress it, um, you, that you don't want it to to come to consciousness. To give one example, he talks about. Like the example of, you know, he's, he kind of like uses a, a typical, almost like um, uh, evolutionary psychology example, right? Like, you're, like imagine some early human walking through the forest and there's a tiger like hidden in the bushes. And so w- what's going on that, in that situation? He would argue, um, perhaps, that um, like um, extrasensorily, um, by ESP, that person on an unconscious level is aware that that tiger is there. Now, what's the adaptive response if that um, if that human wants to survive? Now, if if that piece of information, which is highly relevant because he might die as a result of that tiger, you know, depending on what he does, if that piece of information um, becomes conscious, like oh, there's a tiger there, it might it, well, first of all, it, it might startle him. It's like oh, there's a there's a tiger over there, but that will that might be um, that might be like a second to too late, right? That's that bit of startling might actually trigger the tiger. It might give him like one second less to, you know, jump into that cave. So in that informa- in that situation, you've got extrasensory information about the tiger. You've also got ex- extrasensory information about like a cave nearby. It's like so so that what the artist will do, what this signing process will do, is say, okay, that tiger, that's important, like valent uh, information. It's uh, it's emotionally heightened um, because it has to do with like physical survival. 
It's important, but we're going to sign it negatively. We're not going to bring it to consciousness. We're instead going to sign for this cave because it, it, is, it will be more advantageous for this individual to go to the cave as opposed to getting scared of the tiger. So that's just one example he gives for why things can be signed negatively. But it can be for any reason. Um, it's just, simply put, that information, um, you will be motivated to ignore it for whatever reason. It might be because in that situation there's something more important. In that situation, um, like b having knowledge of that information, of that, uh, that event or that whatever, it will, for whatever reason, go against the, the most important intention or motivation at that moment in time. So then after that is when the, the scientist comes along and because the, the, the artist has basically primed, primed these um, physiological responses, basically preparing for consciousness and preparing for a response. So that's like the, that would be the first, <clears throat> the first um, like things that are, that are coming to consciousness, that are, that are like becoming conscious. It's basically, uh, so, so looking at this data and then constructing a picture out of it and like analyzing it and uh, putting it together to a into a picture, which then gets presented to consciousness. And that's the first actual experience that you have in this situation, where only the relevant information has been coming to consciousness. And what it's actually doing is that that, uh, that information that becomes conscious is the evidence, um, it is the confirmatory evidence to, to, um, to answer the questions posed by these pre-conscious processes. Because uh, like at first, this information is all vague. This is another important point about the theory, is that all this like pre-conscious and um, like subliminal and extrasensory information, um, it is vague in nature. It is like a it is like a hunch or like a just a suggestion of something because it is it's suggesting it's suggesting meanings. It's not it, it isn't a conscious experience. Like when you're when you're conscious of something, you're looking at it. You know you're looking at it. This this unconscious psi process is inherently. Um, vague and fragmented because you don't have the, conf the confirmation of your senses. All you're getting are proposed meanings. It's like, so there's this, this stream of information coming and all that your unconscious mind can do is basically say, okay, well that, that seems to be um, kind of analogous to or it reminds me of this. And so you, you, it basically, if it comes to like your conscious mind at all, it only comes to the conscious mind in the form of a suggested meaning, a potential meaning. And so that is naturally vague in nature. It's, there, there isn't anything definite about it. So what's happening in normal consciousness, normal experience, is that that's going on. The, the unconscious is basically making suggestions about po uh, potential meanings. And then the, the actual act of conscious experience is providing the sensory uh, data, the sensory evidence, to either confirm or like, disprove that unconscious hypothesis, mm -hmm. so to say. Yeah, I was just going to point out just one thing that I think is important is that he he mentions in the book that the psi information or the kinds of information that you get from psi are suboptimal. It's not the kind of information that you want to have necessarily because as a conscious being, you want to know for sure what's going on. You want to be able to label things, understand things, manipulate them. You want to have some form of clarity. But as you said, Harrison, this world of like symbols and 
and meaning is very amorphous and it's difficult to decipher. So for a lot of people, I mean, they're probably sitting there thinking, well, I don't have psi experiences every day. You know, well, I mean, obviously a lot of people would say that they probably have had them on occasions. You know, they've had hunches, they've had gut feelings, they've had dreams that have, you know, foretold the future. They've made predictions. You know, obviously it's not something that you can rely on, but it seems like it's this universal, uh, universal hint system, mm -hmm. you know, because it seems like from what he said, one of the the most optimal times that you will see a uh, sigh uh, when you will see a uh, sigh in your own life is when you're going through a period of crisis or when there you do not have answers readily available mm -hmm. and you are more open in that instance in those instances because you haven't received like cognitive closure on what's going on yeah. you know you need to have some sort of a you're more open, I guess, to these vague kind of general purpose toolkits that will, you know, this is the symbol, you know, this is the feeling, this is, do this, you know, I'm inspired to, to do this, I guess, you know, rather than just spinning my wheels, it'd be better to go in this direction. And you're more prone to experiencing Psy if you are at least uh, in, a, in a position of what he calls a lack of cognitive closure. Because as soon as you get, start working and thinking, you know, and consciously analyzing things, that's when... Uh, the the psi, you know, the psi scores in these studies that he's talking about just just nose bomb. Mm -hmm. You know, they just they just dive because people are now consciously thinking and they're shutting out all of the psi kind of uh, you know inputs, I guess, into their mind. Well, the underlying sense um, I've gotten from what I've read so far is that in trying to create this kind of more holistic understanding and definition of the mind and consciousness that to uh, eliminate uh, this, this other uh, perception, that even if it's uh, pre-conscious or unconscious or going on just in the background, uh, would be to limit uh, our understanding of just how much access to information we have that's, um, that we'd ordinarily take for granted. And like you were saying, Corey, you know, many of us have had... Uh, premonitions and dreams and, and, and various uh, experiences that suggest that, um, that hey, you know, we've just had a psyability that, that would seem to be beyond the pale, that, that goes beyond mere coincidence. So there, there is already kind of acknowledgement uh, on our part, being a little more open to, to this idea that, um, that we do have access to information, even if we can't facilitate it, even if it's... Uh, even if it's not an ability in the sense that we've been uh, taught to think of it as an ability, but, but this kind of natural, ongoing, bi-directional process that we, we might at least become more aware of in, in their dynamics. And um, he, he does get into this in a very rigorous academic way, at least you know, for my sensibilities. Um, but what he's doing, I think, is, is validating this whole other uh, world of information that um, that the materialists would have us think doesn't or can't exist. And early on in the book, <clears throat> and this is pretty relevant to our recent discussions in uh, intelligent design and, and um, evolution, uh, he just provides what he calls the popular model, uh, which is the way that most of us have been trained and programmed to think about how we function. So I wanted to read that because um, everything that 
that comes after and even before uh, is, is in stark distinction uh, to this popular definition. What he says is that in the conventional model of the mind and the world, physical processes are the bedrock of reality. Mental events are generated by physical neurobiological events. Organisms, including human beings, can be understood as biological machines with clear physical boundaries. Because the nervous system generates consciousness, the reality of mental events is secondary and derivative. As the biologist Carl Vogt famously said, the brain secretes thought as the stomach secretes gastric juice, the liver bile, and the kidneys urine. More recently, the astronomer and popularizer of science, Carl Sagan, expressed the same idea in different words. My fundamental premise about the brain is that its workings, what we sometimes call mind, are a consequence of its anatomy and physiology, and nothing more. Since physical processes produce mental events, these events cannot also be elicited by happenings beyond the physical boundaries of the organism, except inasmuch as their effects somehow impinge upon the sensory system. The laws governing mental processes are mechanical and impersonal in nature. Implicit in this presumption of physiology generating mind is the deeper presumption of a reductionist, quote, hierarchy of the sciences, end quote, in which the constructs of physics are seen as reflecting the deepest substrate of reality. From this point of view, the answer to the question about why the particular next thought occurs must be found in the biophysical events that cause that thought to occur. From the point of view of this model, psi either does not exist, the most intuitively sensible alternative, or else it is an occasional aberration that would require some additions or changes to our ways of understanding just how external events call, cause mental ones. For example, how the causal activity of an event at a distance might seemingly magically traverse space and give rise to a change in awareness in a nervous system would require some mechanism of action, analogous to an electromagnetic transmission or perhaps a quantum linkage. Since physical events cause mental ones, the rare and anomalous instances of distance and influence... Hold on a sec. No, I think... Go ahead. Yeah, since physical events cause mental ones, the rare and anomalous instances, speaking of rare and anomalous instances, of distance influence would need to be explained by showing just how those physical events have their impact. So right there, Carpenter really uh, frames the dichotomy between materialist thinking on mind and what he proposes as a more kind of holistic vision. Uh, one of the most compelling analogies he makes, I think, uh, in terms of how our mind is um, interpenetrating uh, the, the kind of realm of information is he points out that a, a gecko uh, can seemingly define gravity by sticking to a ceiling. And the reason it can do this is because it has these tiny kind of tendril-like hairs that merge with the molecules of another solid, the, the ceiling. So that, <laughs> you know, are there, are there molecules of, of thought uh, that behave in, in a similar fashion? It would seem to be so. Um, 
in any case, it's, it's just a, another way to, uh, I think, bring our understanding forward in, in the idea that there is a panpsychism. There is a, a kind of a, a cosmic mind that exists that we're, um, that we're kind of uh, working with and, and aware of on some level all the time. But, you know, if you're, if you're thinking strictly along the lines of the materialists, you know, with the, those quotes by, uh, by Sagan and others, then you, you, kind of, uh, you kind of close yourself off in some sense to uh, being a, a receptive um, being. Uh, or at least more receptive, relatively speaking, to, to these uh, thoughts and ideas that, that might uh, provide useful information to you. Yeah, so on the, uh, on the one hand, I think what he, well, I think what he does is he brings these kinds of um, ideas into the realm of the natural. You know, he's basically arguing that we shouldn't think of these things as, as uh, you know, supernatural or paranormal. It's actually normal, it's a normal feature of consciousness and of the mind. <clears throat> and that's how we th- that's how we should think of it. So we're not we're not talking about some kind of special abilities. This is just the way consciousness works. And um, if anything, like what the what he could use um, to kind of make the to kind of bring the argument home would be um, like a more expansive like philosophy to 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 back it up. Um, you know, it's not necessary for the book per se. But uh, in order to just to make a, a, a grander worldview, he could bring um, like Whitehead's philosophy more prominently into into play. Um, I think that's just one way of putting all the ideas together. It's like, oh well, so how do we actually think of this? Um, oh well, there is a way of thinking of it to to make it all so so that it does all make sense. It all fits together into a coherent worldview. Um, but one of the kind of implications of of his work. Here, carpenters, I think, is that um, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a bad thing to think of psi as an ability. Um, for one reason, uh, one additional reason is that uh, like you might think, oh well, I'm I'm not psychic, so I must I must be like lesser for some reason. But he's actually arguing that uh, that no, this psychic consci- this psychic or you know psychic th- these like psi processes are going on all the time for everyone, and actually they are primarily designed for the construction of conscious experience it's not like you're missing out on much if you're if if you're not having these you know so-called psychic experiences all the time it's because you technically are um it's just functioning naturally functioning normally what's actually happening like when you when you do have a so-called experience like that it's actually when something is going kind of wrong not like pathological wrong but there's just like the, the process can't complete in its natural way um so he says, basically, like in an, in an ordinary experience, when you're consciously experiencing something, it's because all these processes are going smoothly, and that consciousness is aligning with those unconscious motivations and intentions, as they should. Now, it may be that your unconscious motivations and intentions um, are at odds with your conscious ones, and that you want you might want to somehow figure out to get your you know get those two intentions in line with each other, but um, but even if the but but if they're not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's actually what you're supposed to be doing. That's what like, that's what the the nature of organisms is is to have these conscious experiences in order to to um, to have like let's say the the optimal response to an intention. That's all. That's all that like consciousness is essentially is is 
um, like experiencing the world and acting in the world um, motivated by these uh, by these intentions. Um, that that's the way things work. It's it's to it's a it's an in, an interaction and like a communion with the world and uh, like this this uh, this relationship with the world um, that is provided direction by intentions. Um, that's why like so f free will is a, a big part of this. It's like what are your intentions and what are you going to do about them and you know how is that all going to play out? And that's and that's essentially what happens is that it does play out. But now let's look at these experiences for these like so-called anomalous experiences for an instant and kind of get an idea on them. So he, what uh, Carpenter basically argues is that when these kinds of side things happen, what's happened is that either the perception or the action has been blocked for some reason. So using the kind of model that we've established that we, we've got these potential meanings, potential, um, you know, potential, uh, or these questions that have been asked, and they've they've brought up potential answers to these questions. But let's say that, um, well, let's use the example of this is a, a common like psychic experience. That's like a um, an apparition of uh, someone like a, a loved one who has died like recently. So this is this is like one of the most documented like spontaneous psi events, where uh, a loved one something bad will happen to a loved one. Maybe they die, and then the person. Like you, the experiencer, will have a vision of them, either in a dream or it might be like a visual like apparition where you, you see the person and it's like, or you might, it might just be some um, significant event. Like you, you look over and, and your loved one's chair is broken or, um, you know, some kind of like significant, meaningful event that in retrospect can be tied to, you know, that moment of the loved one dying and you, you weren't there to basically get the sensory confirmation. That's essentially what's happening. This is a highly um, emotionally charged event that is highly relevant to you, but and so so uh, based on the theory, you would be receiving this um, this psi information from this distant event that isn't in your immediate environment. But because the the perception isn't able to be confirmed by direct sensory experience, it still gets weighted and signed as positive, and it it presents itself. Uh, it presents an impression to your consciousness that might take uh, a symbolic form or it might be uh, like a mental imagery. It might be them appearing in a dream. Um, but, in, so, uh, but in that situation, you don't have the sensory confirmation, right? You don't know for sure that your loved one has died. Often in these cases, it's like it's only when they receive the phone call like five minutes later or an hour later or a day later that it's like, oh, you know, we've got bad news. And then you say, oh, you know, I had that experience. That was it. And that's when you make the connection. Like the, so until, that, uh, until you have the actual confirmatory information, it still just remains this kind of elusive um, uh, metaphorical symbolic thing where you're not sure what you just experienced. You're not necessarily sure the significance of it. Um, you've just had this impression. Um, and it might be a vivid impression, but it's still just an impression. Um, it ha it hasn't. Uh, it's not like you were. It's not like you perceived it happening. It's not like for an instant you you actually saw it happening and you were aware that you were seeing it happening and it was like having a conscious experience because it wasn't a conscious experience. It was a preconscious, preconscious, unconscious um, priming of your your like sensory well uh, of your like mental apparatus, however we think about that. That was. Um, that was the confirmation of which was blocked, and that's why this um, this psi information was kind of given prominence in in your consciousness. 
And that would be an example of the ESP. Now, for the for the the PK, the psychokinesis side of it, it would this would be an action that is blocked. So there's a strong unconscious intention and motivation to complete an action, but for whatever reason, it is that that action is blocked. And so what happens is that the, that action may then be expressed in a in a kind of symbolic form. Um, that but but you haven't actually done it. The action completes some somehow, but um, but you actually haven't done it. Um, and so the way so the way he puts it is that you can only kind of um, like you can only kind of guess when these things are going on. You're, you're never quite sure. So this is this happens in 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 terms of any kind of like telepathic impression or well specifically in the context of what he's primarily writing about is these laboratory experiments. So he gives the example like we'll go back to ESP for a second. All of these tests, um, you know, testing for um, for ESP in some way. So this might be guessing cards or um, what they call the Gansfeld exper or Gansfeld um, yeah experiment, where you basically you know put ping pong balls over your eyes and listen to white noise and basically try to receive a telepathic impression from someone sending you something, and then you then you have various options afterwards, and you say okay, well, well I'll, maybe I'll go in a bit de more detail for this one. So how this works is that you you're basically sensorily deprived. And then you have a like a sender who's basically sending an image, like they're looking at a card that has a, a picture on it, and they're trying to send that image into your mind. And then you're just supposed to relax, and then just describe anything that comes to mind. So you say, "Oh, you know, I see seagulls, and I see you know a building with a tall spire on it, and and um, you know, etc." And then afterwards, they present you with like five maybe like pictures, and you say, "Well, which and or." or um, yeah, they present you five pictures, and they say, which one most looks like the, the images that came to your mind? And, and then you say, oh, it was that one. And, and then you get, like, uh, extra, like, raters who, who will independently look at the data. They'll look at what you describe, and they'll look at the, the images, and they'll say, oh, that's the one that most, you know, matches up with what this person says they saw. And so if it's a hit, then, you, you know, you, you pick the right picture, essentially. And uh, sometimes... It, Sometimes you rate them so it's like, oh, this one's the closest, this one's the second closest. Sometimes it might come in second place, and sometimes it might be last. And basically, just using the laws of chance, you'll be able to see that, oh, this person got, you know, uh, this this amount over chance. So you know, 55% of the time, you know, it should they should have gotten 50% by chance, and it was 55, or it might be 70%, or you know, whatever. So you can have various degrees of success. But at no point in this process, or in like guessing cards. Or uh, guessing what card's going to come up. At no point in that, like, is there certainty? It's always a guess. It's like you, you are guessing. It's like, okay, I think this one's going to come up. You're never sure, and it, and it's only afterwards when you look at the statistics that you can even tell. And there's nothing really for for all these tests differentiating between the you know the way you the, the way you feel when you you get a hit or or not. For like for the most part, if you're just some average Joe taking a test like this, you just guess, and some of them happen to be right, and you're like, oh wow, you know. That's interesting. I, I didn't know I was psychic, but uh, but like the, the actual psychological like uh, process is just a guess. Now um, there haven't been as many um, PK experiments as there have been ESP ones, but um, but there are plenty of like PK phenomena that are, are reported on, and of course there well there are experiences experiments like um, you know trying to affect. Um, <clears throat> Random number generators to like you know generate more zeros than ones than are statistically uh, you know expected, or like influencing um, 
biological systems. So it's like, oh, I, I'm going to try to raise that person's uh, like blood pressure or heartbeat or you know galvanic skin response or something like that. All these kinds of things have been done. But uh, one of the one of the most like dramatic examples is like what used to be called a poltergeist poltergeist phenomena. So um, it's usually around a person. Uh, it's, it's usually centered around one person, and you know weird things seem to happen. Objects are moving, etc. Um, <clears throat> what Carpenter would basically be saying is that, th- that these these anomalous uh, like movements of objects, for instance, are actually the expressions of these unconscious intentions and uncompleted um, actions, uncomple- uncompleted behaviors. So there's often like a, a psychological significance, a symbolic meaning, um, a psychological meaning behind these actions. Um, they're often like uh, like emotionally driven. Um, I think he gives the one example of like the the one <clears throat> PK subject or um, like uh, old poltergeist subject. So the person around whom these phenomena concentrate that was like terrified of objects like flying at them and hitting them in the face. And so I think he said that he even witnessed this once where there's this one you know person, she was just terrified and you know objects are flying around hitting her in the face. It And so on an unconscious level, it's like, again, there's a mismatch. She is like, consciously fearful of this experiment uh, experiments experiment this experience and then it's like something on on the unconscious level is causing it to happen um and you can get mismatches like that all the time but that uh so uh, like a theoretical example would be like let's say you want to reach for like a pencil and for whatever reason um that action is blocked like the way that this would play out in that situation would be that the the pencil moves now the pencil, the pencil is moving, is because uh, because it is like responding to that intention, to that meaning, the meaning of the event, the meaning of like fulfilling that personal motivation of of yours. Um, but you you haven't actually completed the the action. It is responding. It is basically completing the action on its own. Um, that's uh, so. That would be like when you you have like uh, again, there are famous cases of. You know, mediums and psychics who you know uh, have a, an object like a um, uh, a toothpick or something under a glass case, and you know they're trying to move it. That would be an example of why why and how that happens. Well, not necessarily how, because there's still the question of uh, you know, well, how does that happen? Really, that's where you get into more of the like philosophy, and uh, that's where like David Ray Griffin and Whitehead would you know step in. Um, but. Uh, just to round out that PK picture a little bit, what uh, Carpenter is saying happens is that just like ESP is like the first sight, it's the first, it's the first um, unconscious like reception of like non-sensory information that contributes to potentially to a conscious experience. PK is the first act. So your your mind is basically reaching out to that object already and initiating. It's it's again it's like this unconscious like non-physical handshake. Um, there's this relationship between you and the physical object. This relationship between you and the pen, or you and the physical system, biological system that you're trying to interact with in some way. And um, the the first act is basically preparing both you and the object to to engage in this little dance, this little causal relationship. And then when there when that when that action is blocked, like the the intention is still there and the intention is still basically operating. So the the act might actually um, partially complete but again it's not a it's not a full completion because you actually you haven't actually done it you haven't grabbed the pencil um so 
all that is basically just to say back to my original point that uh, when things are going normally, there's no need for these kind of dramatic sigh effects because you grab the pencil. It's like you, you if so, so you shouldn't necessarily like uh, be be pining and longing for for sigh abilities because really, if you want to move the pencil, just grab the pencil, right? The the basically the mind works fine just the way it is, and these experiences, whatever they are, they they happen and they will happen when they're uh, either required or when something is going on that is maybe um, like pathological to a degree, and in that case, there are signs that something needs to be worked on. Like so, in in poltergeist cases, for for instance, there are signs that there are these emotional problems, these emo- emotional like uh, complexes and things going on that need to be dealt with because they're expressing themselves in these like dramatic, uh, like overly dramatic ways. It's like, that's a sign. Okay. Well you need to kind of get your life in order, like figure this stuff out and, and get a handle on it because that's not the way things should be working. And, um, uh, and, and again, if these things happen, it's like they will happen when they need to happen, like in a, in a deathbed apparition. Um, it's like if, if that happens, it's because you simply weren't there to get the sensory information and it, and it was important enough to come to consciousness. So on the one hand, I think that it's just a kind of a reminder not to kind of get too, um, too obsessed with this kind of thing because it's really, you know, it's really just part of, part of everyday life. And, um, and if anything, the, it's the study of these so-called anomalies that gives us a picture of what the mind actually is, how it actually works. And once we know that, and it's like then then you can say, oh well, you know, I've got unconscious intentions and motivations. Well, how does that work? And uh, and I guess the question would be, well, uh, it would be to use the to use the hints that these systems are providing, that these processes are are providing to create a, a picture for yourself of what your what yourself is you know what those motivations are and to be able to see see oh well you know i see why i did that it's because because i i, I really you know on some level i really wanted this to happen or i didn't want this to happen and then you can consciously work that th- through and think about it and say well is that what i really want because like oftentimes like these unconscious like desires or motivations um they'll be um they might not align with your conscious ones. And so that's where, well, that's just where self-analysis has to kind of come into the picture so that you can kind of create your own, create your own self more consciously um, and not just leave it to, to the, these unconscious processes, but basically to try to bring them in alignment. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the issue. That's, that's kind of the big mystery for me now is that what are, what are the effective methods for doing this? And I, th- I think we've talked about some in the past, but I, I really kind of want to nail it down now. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a, that's a big question too, is how do you get yourself in alignment with your, you know, your unconscious intentions and your conscious intentions? Because as he, dis- he details it quite a bit in the book, um, the difference between you know, your unconscious goals versus your conscious goals, and then how the psi phenomena kind of you know, weights and signs things differently, you know, and you, it's, it's just this wild west, for this whole frontier of unstudied uh, reality. But I just wanted to touch on one, an, another example of, uh, of ESP and what they call pre-sentiment. And it was this study that he wrote about that they, t- uh, they gave this, uh, 
uh, psychic test, I guess you could call it, to a bunch of 12-year-old students in school. And they gave them uh, a bunch of cards. They laid them, they laid like, I think it was four cards down on the table. And then they had a bunch of other cards that they had to uh, maneuver in front of the card that it matched. So, you know, you have four sets basically of cards and they all have to match and, but you can't see them. And so these are 12 year old kids and unbeknownst to them, um, under the, the pictures on the cards are erotic photos on some of them, not all of them, but some of them are erotic photos. And they tested the kids beforehand to, to find out how anxious they were because they wanted to see if anxiety would interfere whatsoever or how it would correlate with you know being able to accurately guess pretty much using you know pre-sentiment esp where the uh, cards would go where they fit and it turned out that it that it was significant it was significantly correlated with missing on the erotic photos because the more anxious the kids were to them they they interpreted that to mean that they you know on some level they were signing these as we don't want to you don't look don't you don't want to know what it is it doesn't exist you know it's it's signed negatively or however he would put that mm -hmm. and they've replicated those kinds of studies numerous times now these kids they don't know they they'll never know um you know they might say oh you got a relatively accurate score but to them it was just pushing cards around mm -hmm. it, you know in ordinary life it's something similar i think yeah. we you make a choice you don't know exactly why you made the choice but something inside of you said make this choice and not the other one mm -hmm. you know that's how our entire lives are 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 made and so if you can line up you know your conscious intentions with your unconscious intentions but the problem i think is that like, what if your un unconscious intentions are bad? Then who exactly. do you turn to? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what if your unconscious intentions are like, uh, uh, I must, I want to self-destruct? You know, you're like, well, what the, you know, how do I, uh, I guess you have to go through uh, depth psychotherapy for years and years and years. <laughs> well, I think that's where, like, positive disintegration comes into it. Um, because really, I think what the, what the positive disintegration process is, um, like Dabrowski would say, it's the construction of a hierarchy of values. And um, in in that process, there are numerous conflicts. That's what the that's what the process is. It is positive disintegration. It is things coming into conflict within oneself. It is one um, one aim or intention playing itself out in you unconsciously that is at odds with your conscious intention. And through that through that conflict, uh, through that struggle, is the is the creation of the hierarchy to the ideal point where those two things are in line all the time. And where maybe maybe not even in line all the time. There may be times when the the unconscious intention is still there, but it is completely in the at the service of um, um, of the higher um, like conscious intention, so that it doesn't it doesn't control you. Because that's really what it comes down to is when your unconscious intentions control you. Because um, there might be an unconscious um intention but it's at least theoretically possible i think to have a conscious intention that is stronger that's not how it plays out that's not how it plays itself out um naturally like because like carpenter carpenter says the unconscious intention usually wins out but um but i think there's got to be a way where the the conscious intention can actually win the game and that i think that comes with uh with strength of character maybe mm -hmm. but um but again like this stuff is is really interesting it would be interesting to to actually do some research along those lines and uh, <clears throat> to see how these intentions come into conflict and how one wins over the other, what the circumstances are, what can be done to kind of shift, mm -hmm. um, shift the, the weight of, 
of the conscious intentions over the unconscious ones. But maybe just on that topic, I want to read out <clears throat> something he says about these um, uh, about these unconscious intentions. Um, I'll just it's just a uh, two paragraphs. So this is in the section called "Why Consciousness." In regard to the guidance of the flow of consciousness, we ordinarily want consciousness to focus on the most useful thing at any given moment. This implicit motive guides the orienting information that is passed on from each perceptual stage to the next. In seeking the most useful thing, we are pursuing a balance of several needs all the time, although different needs may be more salient at different times. Some of these needs are general, and many are shared with all animals. In the case of human beings, it is more adequate to think of these needs as intentions rather than blind forces. So he gives, an, he gives three examples of these kind of uh, general aims or motivations. So one, we want to continue to live and to live happily and freely. So we also want to avoid potential danger, pain, and confinement. And so this is just a you know, basic, mm-hmm. you know, basic knowledge for, <laughs> for all living things. Um, and you can't argue with that. I mean, you know, things want to survive and do things in order to survive. Um, can't get around that, really. You can, well, you can get around it, but uh, it's a very strong uh, impulse. Two, we want to maintain harmonious and fruitful, fruitful relations with our interpersonal network, so we also want to avoid conflict, shame, and guilt. Three, we want to maintain adequate con- control over our circumstances and a well-functioning, predictive understanding of events, so we also want to avoid confusion, identity diffusion, the invalidation of core constructs, and a loss of freedom to explore and, and investigate. So right here, we've got this. We've already got these um, these kind of conflicts, and how how all of these intentions can uh, can come into conflict, uh, not only with like themselves, with each other, and with uh, the more conscious individual um, intentions as well. So, for example, like uh, there is a kind of instinctual um, instinctual intention to avoid. Uh, the disintegration of one's personality, because it isn't it isn't helpful to be in a disintegrated state, right? Like uh, that, it makes you it makes you weak, it makes you vulnerable, and it uh, like and so there's there's a natural um, you know revulsion to completely having your worldview shattered, but sometimes your worldview needs to be shattered, right? Especially when it's when it's in conflict with um, a, a higher goal, a higher value that you might hold. Um, so th- this is just one of those examples where where the, these things come in conflict where on the one hand like positive disintegration is the only way to for growth the only method for growth and then on the other hand there is an an, an unconscious um aim and intention to avoid that disintegrative process so naturally that's going to lead to to problems and difficulties but uh but not insoluble ones um one thing that we haven't really talked about though that is kind of really important and that uh, carpenter focuses a lot of time on is subliminal uh subliminal mm-hmm. processes because uh he argues that subliminal processes which are well studied in psychology are basically it's the same process going on with psi information it's just um it's just a different source of information so he gives uh for you know for those who might not be familiar with subliminals or primes um an example might be um like flashing um, in, in an experiment, flashing uh, uh, an image, which might be like emotionally 
um, valent or significant like the ones you described, Corey, about the cards um, that the 12-year-olds the were dealing with. In the 12-year-olds, they didn't actually see the card, but in, in a prime or a subliminal experiment, that image will be flashed on a screen um, so fast that you're not consciously aware of it. So subliminal processes actually, you know, it sounds like they, they shouldn't exist if you have like a pre-existing -exi pre notion of what consciousness is. Um, but, uh, you know, these, these things have been studied for years now and uh, are just generally accepted. So that, so that um, um, a bit of sensory information, like uh, in the case of visual information, can be flashed so fast that you have absolutely no, no awareness that you've even seen something. You have no awareness that you've even seen an image. It doesn't register in your consciousness or awareness at all. But it has an effect on you. It, uh, it, might, um, it might make you, like, phys physiologically, you'll have a response. You might start sweating. You might start showing, si uh, showing signs of anxiety or, or just emotional, like, perturbation. And you might not even be aware that you're feeling those things, that your body is, is showing those changes. Um, all these things are going on on an unconscious level. And um, that not uh, not only that, but um, you know, it can put you. It can change your mood. It can change your um, your like your ability to do certain tasks. Um, basically, it can affect your your behavior, your emotions, and your cognitive processes. Um, and all totally outside the realm of your conscious awareness. So, what Carpenter's argu arguing is that the same process happens with non-sensory information. Um, that it that it will affect your emotions, your your cognition, and your behavior on an unconscious level, and this would be um, these would be primarily um, uh, visible in the examples I gave, where um, where there is a blocking of the perception or the action, and that leads leads to what he calls inadvertencies. So these would be actions that uh, that are inadvertent; they're not intended, but that but they express some meaning, some unconscious intention. He gives the example of uh, how he's hard of hearing, um, so he doesn't always hear what people are saying at parties, for instance. So he gave one example where he's at a party and um, and he had a great idea, and so he said, "Oh, you know, like we should do this or something like that, or this is a great idea," and like he looks at his wife, I think, and his wife just gives him the look, "Oh, like oh, he's doing it again." And uh, everyone kind of realizes this because someone else had said that like five minutes ago. He hadn't heard it, but um, I, you know, either um, either using ESP or just um, just like using his actual hearing, but not being aware of it, he had heard that person say that thing. He had, but he, but his conscious experience hadn't registered that as as being an actual conscious sensory experience. So what happened was it, it essentially entered into his mind, and he just had this this idea that popped into his head, not knowing where it came from. And he's like, "Oh, that's a great idea." So he said it, having no actual awareness that it had it had been said by a person before. So that that's a kind of example of um, it could either be subliminal or non-sensory. Um, you know, probably subliminal, but who knows? But there are exa other examples of that too, like uh, like Freudian slips. He gives another another funny example of how uh, like uh, his daughter's boyfriend had come over one time, and he was working on like he was a biologist, or, you know, biology student, and he was talking about. He said like, "Oh, our lab does great work creating new orgasms. I mean, organisms." Right, and it's like it's a typical Freudian slip, right? Because he had one thing on his mind that he, you know, he didn't want to come out, and then it, it inadvertently comes up, you know, in a in a slightly embarrassing way, or in a very embarrassing way, in that case. Um, and this can be, you know, we we see these things like in general life all the time, right? It's it's just the the things that 
that leak out, that slip out um, against our awareness that 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 uh, that are expressions of some kind of um, unconscious process, which are themselves the expression of an unconscious like motivation or intention. And uh, so they can be funny, but they're also revealing because they because those signs um, reveal the the kind of the hidden aspects of our uh, of our minds. And um, I think that's actually that's why paying attention to like signs like that to 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 things what what could you call them like the the anomalies um, like the anomalies of your behavior uh, of your thinking like an image just pops into mind why did that image pop into mind well there there was a reason for it you might not know the reason you might not ever find out the reason but it might be useful to kind of look at those things what why why did I dream this and not that you know sometimes. Uh, Sometimes there is highly significant information like encoded in dreams, um, just like in, in any, other, any of these other um, you know, types of experiences. And they can be you know, operationalized in a sense too, like in all these experiments, but also in re- like remote viewing, where it's like, okay, just relax and just describe whatever comes into your mind. We're gonna, we want you to describe you know, the, the target in this sealed envelope. Just you know, relax and just say what you see. So it's not like the person says the person is like aware of of seeing that target. It's like no images are coming into their mind, and they're describing the images. So again, this isn't a like a direct conscious perception of the 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 psi information, the psi data, the target. It is it's just images coming into your mind. It's suggested meanings that the the unconscious mind is is basically suggesting to the conscious mind. It's like oh well, we've got this vague idea of something. Um, and these are the kind of things it reminds us of. And so, um, so here, you know, what can you do with this? And then you've got the data and it's like, oh, well, you know, I see, I see these shapes and, and the building kind of shape like this. And, uh, and if, if you've got, if you've got a lot of, um, like background data, you might be, you might be really accurate, but you might be just kind of like, uh, like very accurate. I'll give two examples from remote viewing. Like two actual examples, uh, you know, from studies like this. Like one was a a woman. It was her first time, um, first time doing a, a remote viewing thing, and so she, it was her task to describe where, like, another of the researchers was walking with someone else. So they send these people out to just pick a random location, or there's a predetermined location. I can't remember which it was in this case. And she's like, okay, well, I'm seeing like a, it's almost like a like a tube or a like a. a um, some kind of like conveyor of some sort that you walk through and there's like squares within squares getting smaller. And so she drew this picture of like this tunnel of squares and where the people actually were was uh, like a, uh, an overpass, you know, a walk, a walkway over a, over a a road, which was, um, you know, encased in kind of like the chain link fence basically. And so it was, it wasn't squares, but it was kind of more of a, you know, an arch shape, but there were like all these arches, going down towards it in this tunnel-like shape. So, so it was pretty accurate, but, but it wasn't perfect, right? So it was like a suggestion of where, she was, of where they were. Um, it was like a, a potential, potential image that gave you know, the meaning of, of those shapes. But then there's an example of Joe, Mc, Joe McMonagall, who's a famous remote viewer, who um, like he, he remote viewed some location. It was some, you know, uh, some military building or, or academy or something like that. And he was actually like, if not a professional, then like an experienced draftsman. So like he understood buildings and he could like, 
you know, basically draw architectural diagrams. And so he, he drew this building um, almost like, you know, picture perfect. Um, and probably, I think, because that was like part of his expertise already. He, he's, so, so when the, the suggested meaning was presented to him, he already had all of these like really specific um, examples available so he could put that picture together using that information. Again, still, he wasn't sure, you know, remote viewers are never sure, oh, I'm looking at this for sure, and I ha I'm having this direct experience of it. It's like, it's no, just what's happening are, are images coming into their minds. And, uh, you know, just to give a couple examples. Anything else? <laughs> <laughs> no, I lost my train of thought on that one. I was listening so intently, because <laughs> I was thinking about Joe McMonagall. He was a Vietnam veteran, right? And he trained, so. wasn't he? I can't remember for sure. Was he in like the deep state for a while? Wasn't he part of like the Stargate program or something like that? So he had yeah. some really good training. And he mm -hmm. talks about um, that in the book, about the, uh, you know, the fact that they, it's not like they were creating these super spies with all of these, you know, intelligence, uh, psychic programs, but they were just... Uh, finding the natural ability in a lot of people and then these individuals were learning the various techniques that are required like i think joe uh doesn't he mention the fact that when he is drawing something and he's looking through his mind's eye quote unquote you um he you don't say what it is what you think it is right. you never say what you think it is you just say what it looks like yeah. or what you're seeing you can only describe what you're seeing because as soon as you say what you think it is then you've committed the act of cognitive closure and you've basically lost you know you're back into your conscious mind and you're out of that that dissociative space from which you're you're uh whatever this aspect of your body the prophet or whatever is able to you know mm -hmm see be in you know beyond time and space and then give you information about what what's out there mm -hmm. as soon as you've committed cognitive closure then you've you've shut down that communication channel which is very mind-boggling to imagine uh you know that uh that science right now um even if it's fringe science i don't know if it is fringe science necessarily uh parapsychology at this time i mean it seems like this book is a big attempt to try and make all of these findings coherent and prevent and present them to the scientific community um but it, it it's it fits right in with like you know, the intelligent design and all this and all these other things that we've been discussing all these this real science that's going on concerning things that are fundamentally interesting they're you know they're weird clearly you know the idea of everybody having some psychic connection to out into another dimension and how that you know basically influences our day-to-day -day decisions uh without our knowing necessarily that's you know some weird stuff but when you read the book and you see the studies you know the actual studies that are done mm -hmm. and then you're it's pretty damn convincing mm -hmm. and and this guy kind of reminds me well in a, in a different way maybe but um you know we've all uh, read a little bit or heard about or watched videos of uh, rupert sheldrake mm -hmm. and uh you know his his morphogenetic feels if i'm even pronouncing that correctly uh you know just this idea that um that we do have this uh this kind of uh, extra physical um non-physical uh communication um that 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 is ongoing that uh is largely taken for granted uh except when the anomaly can't be ignored and is so in your face that um you know after you've after you've uh kind of 
uh, the, dismissed or, or able to dismiss the idea that it's a coincidence, you know, you're, you're forced to confront uh, this, this possibility of um, a, a connection to thoughts and ideas and, and other people in the form of te- telepathy. You know, if you've ever been close to somebody, uh, you, you might find that you or them is thinking about or, or calling each other at the exact same moment. Um, all sorts of different things that, that suggest the reality of, of what we're talking about here, uh, what Carpenter is writing about. Um, but uh, getting back to something you mentioned a little earlier, Harrison, in terms of intentionality, um, you know, what, one thought was that, um, like you were saying, and I agree, you don't want to you don't want to strive for psychic abilities for the for the the kind of uh, experience of it necessarily or thrill or or the sensation or the the you know the power of it um but at the same time uh it would seem to be that if we can openly uh intend especially if those intentions are aligned with your higher values uh if you can intend for some positive outcome um, in, in as detached but objective a way as possible. Uh, it, it would seem, um, and Carpenter talks about this kind of bi-directional relationship between uh, th- this information field and, and our own uh, thoughts and wishes um, or intentions to achieve things or act on reality. Uh, it, it would seem as though you, you can... Uh, at least make yourself more available to the information that's out there um, in some sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. He, in the book, he talks about the different kinds of uh, personality traits that that go along with being more or less, um, you know, quote-unquote psychic uh, and, you know, under certain circumstances. For example, he talks about the fact that you want to have meaningful information now that's you know you're you're seeking after meaningful information or, or you know it's being given by someone that you care about so like in a lot of these studies when you have uh, when you're seeking information from a, a loved one it's you get more uh, hits than you do if you're just seeking information from some random stranger or some other or in the experimenter mm-hmm. then also the relations with the experimenter uh, in these studies also greatly influences the studies themselves just because that primes the individual, the relationship, you know, if the present or if the experimenter, you know, just cold and, you know, you know, uh, just studious and off-putting, then that's going to bias their, you know, that's going to probably could create some feelings of anxiety. And as they've shown, a lot of times anxiety reduces the, your interest in this material because you're, you're thinking or you're worried and it's distracting. And uh, another interesting thing is just being be, believing in psi in general. You know, if obviously if you want to become a psychic or whatever, then you're going to believe in psi. But this the psi aspect, this profit, you know, that we were discussing, um, it doesn't impinge on the free will. So people who don't believe in psi are less likely to score on these on these tests just because it's not pertinent to them. Mm-hmm. And well, it actually would contradict one of their core beliefs. Right. And so, ironically, that might also cause them to do what he calls psi missing. Right. So this would be getting the wrong answer like more yeah. than, than is statistically expected. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, in this, like, in this experiment where you might be expected to get 50-50, you know, basically choosing zero or one, 
And uh, so if you get a hit, a psi hit, then you might get, you know, maybe 70% or, or just, you know, or 55 or whatever. But if, for, if you've got this strong, um, strong belief against psi, you might actually get like 70% wrong. So you're actually still um, demonstrating like a psi ability, but you're getting it in the wrong direction. Because on this unconscious level, um, that does, uh, it does go against that unconscious intention and that unconscious belief. Um, so that it, to, to confirm that belief, basically, it's like, oh, no, no, that's bad. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to uh, confirm psi ability. So, so let's, uh, let's go in the opposite direction. And ironically, it confirms, you know, psi ability in quotes, um, which is kind of interesting. But maybe that, that brings up one thing. This was a, this was the, the like the one concept that uh, that we had. I think the most trouble understanding at first, and that's uh, switching, because we talked about waiting and signing. So waiting is the original, like um, basically ascribing a level of importance to a piece of data, and then signing is whether that will be like incorporated into experience or not. Um, so like we gave various examples of important information that is signed negatively, and one example was that twelve-year-old experiment. Experiment, right? Where the 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 psi information of these erotic pictures was signed negatively, so it, so it's like no, we're going to ignore that. Um, and then, um, but the next thing is this switching idea, and that that it's a bit tough to understand. But here um, I'll try to describe it. Switching basically um, basically accounts for these different types of um, results that you get in these experiments. Because on the one hand, you can have like a strong confirmatory like response where it's like okay yes that's this demonstrates psi on the positive end you get you know you you uh, you get a lot of uh, a lot of hits basically and then uh, psi missing would be a lot of misses um, also well that would be signed negatively but then you get examples of like long runs of experiments that are just chance right well on the assumption that these processes are going on all the time these psi processes how do you account for all of those different things because um, um, uh, I just want to find one thing that I wrote to jog my memory. Um, so what did I call it? Yeah, it's called shifting. So this is basically, shifting is basically what changes the direction of the signing. So you might get um, a strong, consistent, like stable motivation um, that would be, you know, consistent with psi hits or, or, or psi misses. Those are uh, like a positive or a negative signing. But then for whatever reason, um, if one of those responses isn't ideal, what he hypothesizes is that there's this is that the direction is switching back and forth rapidly, basically. So because there are really only two options when you have inf- uh, like psi information, it's either you go with it or you don't. You you turn you turn towards it or you turn away from it. So just with that mu- just with that in the theory, you'd expect either psi hits or or psi misses you wouldn't expect anything in between so i think maybe one of the reasons that he came up with this idea is to explain the um the 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 chance results because he 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 explicitly says at various points in the book that even um even chance results are a result of psi uh psi processes because psi produce psi contributes to every uh, every event, every behavior, every every sensation, every thought, etc. That it is the, the the leading edge, the cutting edge of every mental process. 
So what happens in like a chance event is when it's it's switching back and forth. Okay, relevant, not relevant, re relevant, not relevant, um, just to balance out because no response is needed. So it's basically there. Are, there are three possibilities. There's a positive response, a negative response, and no response. And the 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 way no response comes about is by balancing out the the positives and the negatives. So it just switches back and forth, saying it, it's like a. Um, I can't think of the proper analogy, but it's like it's in a constant state of readiness, basically, you know, switching back and forth, like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And then when it's like, when you really want no, it's like, okay, no, 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 no. And then you get like a, a visible, you know, sigh miss, a string of sigh misses. And then if it's a positive one, if it's if it's something that aligns with the attention, then it's like, yes. And so it's it, it no longer switches back and forth. It stabilizes in you know the opposite direction, in the yes direction, and that's when you get a, a hit. That's when something uh, contributes to experience, as opposed to to, to being blocked out and to you know, being ignored, essentially. Yeah, I think he used the analogy of the the boxer, right? He's he's yeah. shifting weight. Yeah, that's he's right. not just standing there waiting to get punched in the face. He's shifting weight so that he's agile and ready to throw a punch as soon as as the, as the shot. Um, so yeah, I was saying that uh, belief in Psy, so belief in Psy was an important contributor to actually experiencing these Psy events. And then also, he has in a chapter about extroversion, extroversion which, is, which is really interesting because one of the biggest findings in parapsychology is that extroverts have more Psy than introverts. And he breaks this down into, for a number of reasons, but one of them is just in terms of what motivates extroverts versus introverts. And the kinds of studies, how they set these things up, might motivate an extrovert more than an introvert. And so they've even done some studies on, you know, you've, you test people for their extroversion or introversion, and then you put them with, uh, you know, someone of the opposite sex, and then you they score better, you know, because they're motivated. They want to score better, so they do score better. Whereas an introvert, you know, you you put them in, and then maybe they don't care. They're not interested. They Maybe they're even a little bit put off by, you they're know, anxious. or anxious. They're anxious. But when you put an introvert into, like, what you were describing, the Gansfeld test, where they sit with golf balls over their eyes, and all they do is they, you know, they listen to the uh, the white noise, and they just drift into their stream of images. They that's where the introverts actually excel, and mm. extroverts miss or not miss, but just uh, don't score as high. Which I thought was really interesting because they it's one of the bigger findings, I guess, is that extroverts typically score more. But then, according to this study. Well, it makes sense because their motivations are different. Introverts are more motivated to look within and to ponder, and extroverts are more interested to be, you know, partying, according to, you know, the colloquial, the, the center of attention. Yeah, so extroversion uh, was found to be, and introversion, uh, both relevant depending on the context. And the, an openness also was important because, as he describes it, open people are probably more likely to find the information from Psy more interesting, more intriguing, whereas people who aren't as open are going to find it dubious. You know, it's not necessarily a disbelief in Psy, but it's maybe a, more of a disbelief in its relevance. You know, if you've got, if you're a more traditional, conservative type individual, you like to, you know, you're an engineer, you know, you like to be consciously uh, manipulating things with your mind and figuring out things, you're, maybe that kind of information you're going to find less trustworthy. So op if you're higher in openness, you're more likely to be better at psi. And then also creative people have been found to be um, to be a little bit more psychic than others. But 
only under certain circumstances, like act like creative people in the sense of like artists and people who have what he called intentional stability. So you can't just be a, you know, oh, I just draw art. I feel like I'm creative. I feel like I'm psychic. No, you have to be somebody who has this stability of intention that, um, that drives and create, and then, you know, follows through with an actual creative work. These, those individuals are more likely to be psychic or to be exposed to this kind of psychic information. And it makes sense too, because a lot of their work is drawing on this, you know, inner, you know, world of images of and, yeah, potential narratives meanings. meanings yeah that's most of their work so they they live in that so of course it would be meaningful and relevant to them um and yeah that's pretty much sums up a lot of the the actual like personality and anxiety too obviously anxiety was a sign of or if you were more prone to be more anxious you were actually more likely to uh to sense negative events coming but you're still on other tasks. You're 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 just too scared of information you don't want. Yeah, because the what I got in one of the early chapters was that um, anxiety basically leads to avoidance. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you're an anxious person, you're more basically more likely to avoid any potentially disturbing information. So that would that actually um, um, mostly dampens you know psi effects because. All this psi information might be potentially, you know, anxiety-inducing. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like he basically says some of the best states to be in for like to be conducive to these to this kind of uh, process is to be like in a state of openness, um, not to be thinking about anything in particular, to to kind of just have this free-flowing thought thought process, not to be anxious, to be relaxed, and um, yeah. To, to basically and to, and to have a wish like to, to have a like a, a strong wish for for um, you know something to happen so uh, I think we kind of we've gone on long enough today so we'll actually we'll be coming back to this book again in the future I don't know maybe ne- next week maybe the week after that to continue talking about it but uh, I just want to thank you all for tuning in and watching if we put this one up on YouTube. So if you see this on YouTube, uh, make sure to subscribe and like and uh, leave comments. They can be either positively signed or negatively signed, and then we will either choose to bring them to consciousness or not, depending on uh, if we like them or not. So thanks, everyone. Uh, (laughs) Have a great week, everybody. Take care, everyone. Bye.